Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 40. Fun interview today. We're chatting with an old friend of mine who works in audio post-production, mixing TV shows. During that interview, there was something he said that I wanted to go deeper on. He mentioned that he was always trying to be conscious of what he's doing, why he's doing it, and whether or not he should be doing it. I think everyone falls victim to doing things without thinking about it sometimes. I know I definitely have. The longer you've been in this industry, the more conscious you have to be of not falling into the trap of being controlled by habits and routines in your creative workflow. Now, normally the productivity nerd in me would be praising systems and methods that allow you to work quickly and efficiently. Stuff like mixing or production templates, things that just get you going. But even though those things are great, you have to always remember to be purposeful in your decision making. Are you compressing the guitars because they need to be compressed or because you always compress guitars? Are you adding an extra synth to the chorus because it's missing something or because it's the chorus and it must need another layer? Are you tuning the vocal because it's a great performance that needs a tweak or because you tune all your vocals perfectly? See, it's easy to get caught up in doing things out of habit or to think that things need to be done just because everyone around you is doing them. But really, the only thing that needs to be done to every project is what best serves that project. And this does not always apply to creative endeavors. Think about what you're posting on social media, or how you negotiate a deal, or even wording an email. Are you asking yourself, what am I doing, why am I doing it, and should I be doing it? If you're not aware and conscious of the reasons and results of your decisions and actions, then they are not going to help you achieve your goals. You'll just be doing work for work's sake, and you'll find yourself in that cycle of being busy that I've talked about before, and you won't be making progress towards your goals. Being conscious of what you're doing and why ties directly in with taking time to reflect on what you've done in the past. I've mentioned it a few times, and many of our guests have mentioned it as well. If you don't take time to review and reflect on what is working and not working in your career, you'll never be able to readjust your course. In fact, that's probably step number one. First, you need to look back at what you've done so far and take stock of what is working for you, both creatively and non-creatively. It's the only way you can start being purposeful in your decision-making and asking yourself these questions. What are you doing? This is the easy one. Don't overthink it. (laughs) What are you doing? And then, why are you doing it? Things are getting tougher here, but what is the reason for what you're doing? Is it because it serves the project or the end goal? And then finally, should you be doing it? This is the hardest question to ask yourself. Why? Because it might make you wrong. You might realize that you were making a mistake and that you're doing something that is going against the goal of the project, 
or even worse, against your values as a person? Now, that third question is the one you'll probably avoid. People will always avoid the tough question. What you're doing and why you're doing it are fairly easy and safe to answer. But admitting whether you should or should not be doing something is significantly harder. Now, obviously, if we're talking about something like overcompressing a vocal, then nobody's going to get hurt. The mix will just probably not get approved as quickly as it could have. But there are clearly other far more serious things that you should be applying these questions to. If you're not making big career decisions without asking yourself these questions, then sure, things may pan out from time to time, but in the end, you'll probably have regrets. If you are purposeful and understanding of the decisions you are making, then you'll find yourself to be in a far better position. So next time you're working, take a second to start asking yourself, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And should I be doing it? Today's guest is Emmy-nominated re-recording mixer Ryan David Adams. Ryan has been working in the post-production side of television for nearly two decades, amassing a long list of credits along the way. He recently received his first Emmy nomination for Outstanding Sound Mixing for a Nonfiction or Reality Show in 2020 for the Netflix documentary series Cheer. Other notable shows that he's worked on include The Voice, MasterChef, American Idol, Lego Masters, Last Chance U for Netflix, and Class Action Park for HBO Max. So welcome to the show, Ryan David Adams. Hey man, how are you? What's going on, dude? Not much. It's been a long time. I've, I see you on the screen. Yeah, it's it's been a long time, especially since we've seen each other in person. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, yeah, it's been a minute. How are things? How have you been? You're you're working. Yeah, things are good. Been you know figuring, navigating work situations throughout this whole thing. Things have been pretty normal for me work wise since about July of last year. That's good. Um, so I really only had like from March to July, you know, kind of working out of my garage. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> kind of. Uh, yeah. weird setup. But other than that, I've been pretty normal. I mean, we're right. just starting on the precipice of like getting back in rooms with clients and like kind of getting even more normal than, um, you know, everything reviews and everything have been um, via the internet uh, in different formats and stuff like that. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll, I'm going to ask you about that about okay. that later. But, sure. you know, you know, what's funny is uh, I was thinking about it and we've been friends for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, we never talk about work. Like we go no, golf, rarely, we make, rarely. Yeah, make fun of each other's hockey teams. Yeah. And, um, when I was doing a little prep and like going through your IMDB, I was like, wow, I was like, how do I not know any of these things that Ryan has done? We just never, it never comes up. We just don't do it. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it's, that's kind of my philosophy too. Like my wife, Diana, like she, she, she loves to talk to me about her work. And like, I barely talk to her about mine. Cause I don't know. I like come home and I'm like, the last thing I want to do is go through all the stuff I had to, you know, manage throughout the day. Like, oh my God, can you believe this happened? And, you know, I'm like, no, that's, that stays at work. And then, you know, we're out in the golf course, we're talking about much more enjoyable things or just making fun of each other, really. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, like my awful golf shots that keeps all yeah. of us, uh, yeah. you know, on check. It keeps but, it okay. very entertaining. Before we like really get into it, mm -hmm. I have to ask, you know, kind of, I know what you do. Yes. Um, but other people are probably going to be confused. Let's talk about the the word re-recording mixer. Yeah. I mean, how how oh, did man. mixing Labels. TV end up being called re-recording mixer? Like what how how did, what is this? What's going on? Yeah, well, you know, I always relate it, I kind of create an an analogy around music because, you know, it happens all the time. I, you know, 
talking about the golf course, I'll get paired up with people on the golf course and inevitably like, you know, the question starts like, well, what do you do? Uh, I'm a re-recording mixer for TV. Okay. What is that? And it's funny, like the lay person will understand like how a record gets, like a music, like music records get made, right? They're like, you know, a, a band will go into a studio, it'll get recorded, someone will mix it they might not really understand what that means but they kind of get the gist of it yeah. and uh and then you know it gets released like that's what happens right so i always tell them like okay well if you can imagine that process instead of a band going into a studio someone a production right they have a show that's written or it's a reality show or whatever they take a camera and they go record it it's the same process as a band going into the studio they record the scene, eventually a bunch of scenes get chopped together and now you have an episode, a bunch of episodes get chopped together and now you have a series, right? So where I come in in the process is basically in our analogy, the band has recorded their album and then like in music, it's kind of confusing because sometimes your recording engineer might also mix the record, right, for release. Maybe, maybe not. Could go to a, a separate mixer for, you know, whatever reason. But basically... A re-recording mixer is a person who, instead of taking bass, drums, guitar, synths, whatever, mixing that into a song, I'm taking dialogue, music, and effects and mixing that into a show, right? Right. It's it's kind of like finishing the final, this is what the show is going to sound like when all of these elements are put together. I'm putting all of those elements together to make a cohesive show. Yeah, but... Re-recording. Why is it called re-recording? Yeah, re-recording. It's got to be like a historic, like, <laughs> well, because you know? but, yeah, no, I know. Well, so uh, an onset, the onset person, like, y- you really wouldn't see it called like sound recordist, even though that's kind of what it is. They're called sound mixers, onset. because onset because they usually have like a little interface and they have multiple inputs into that interface, right? So you you're gonna have a boom, right, for the scene. Yeah. You're gonna have a boom. Depending on the production, you might have lavs as backup on each character. And technically what's happening is there is a two-mix going from that recording. I mean, all of those are getting recorded individually, right? Like all those channels are getting recorded on their own tracks. But also a two-mix is going to the camera for something called a camera mix. Because like when that video is going to get edited into the episode, editors quite often are only working with the audio that comes with that video off that camera. And then what happens is there's like a a conform that happens afterwards. Like if you want all those ISO mics, all the isolated recordings, if you want that like in your timeline, there's a conform that happens, you know, either by an AE on the video side. Sometimes it happens on our side uh, in in the audio world. We'll take it. And like, you know, you've got metadata and it's all done with time codes. So, you know, whenever they shoot a scene, there's like daytime code, right? So that's right. the first set and all that information, all that, you know, metadata gets put into the files. And then once they edit it, it's kind of like dual comparing. Now you have a timeline, you know, if you can imagine Pro Tools, it's similar, right? They have a timeline that's set up with time code. So their edit has a time code and it's also matching what was recorded number wise on the day of production. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 So then you can basically conform, right? Because the, you know, whatever program you're going to use is saying, oh, this section they use from this, you know, time code from the day of production, and it needs to go at this time code for the show. And then it just matches up all the individual you know, sources. Right. Okay. 
So the awesome. re- that's a long explanation <laughs> to why someone on set is called a sound mixer. Because technically speaking, they are creating a two mix to go right. to camera, which is going to get used in the editorial process. Uh, now, okay. a re-recording mixer, I, again, I don't know that I've ever heard it defined to me. The only, the only, I mean, a lot of this stuff is like historical, right? Like right, this is yeah. just labels that get put on historically. I mean, re-recording because you are doing re-recording in post-production, right? So post it being shot, you know, you might be, you know, doing Foley, which is being recorded after the things actually have been recorded, right? Ah, so yeah, the, so fo- I can fo- see where it's coming in now. Right. Yeah. So Foley is, for anyone who doesn't know, Foley is, um, a lot of the times, a lot of very subtle stuff that you would, you know, if you're watching a scene and we're pretending like we're a fly on the wall and we're hearing everything that's happening in that scene, a lot of times a microphone might not pick up in a, in a great way someone shuffling through a book, right? The, the pages in a book turning, right? You might not yeah. really hear that, but you see it. And so Foley is are, are, are basically performative sound effects. Someone, an artist, a Foley artist will be in a booth and a recordist will record them and they'll basically, you know, for certain visual sound effect things that we're going to add, they'll perform it. They'll walk steps. So they'll add in, you know, with their own feet, they'll match what they're seeing the character on screen do stepwise or books or yeah. So that's, that's kind of the, that's being re-recorded. That's another recording that's going to get added into the thing. You also have stuff um, like ADR, which is like, uh, Think of it as like punching in on a vocal, right? Like dialogue replacement. You know, a band yeah. recorded. Yeah, they, yeah. They like recorded the the song in one take, and one, this one chorus is crappy. We're gonna go back and punch that in, right? Yeah. So they were on the actor was on set for whatever reason. This line didn't come across, didn't get recorded properly. There was a truck that blew it. You know, a semi like blew its horn in the background, and now this line is like you know, we got to re-record it. So yeah. they do something called ADR, which is, yeah, exactly. It's just dialogue replacement. And then also you're going to have other sound effects builds, you know? So a re-recording mixer is really just taking everything that's happened, you know, the rec- the recordings that happened on set during production, all the stuff that's being added to the show after production, music, sound effects, Foley, et cetera, et cetera. And mixing all that stuff together. So that's kind of the long-winded explanation of what a re-recording mixer is and does. Well, that's good. I know. I, I think uh, our <laughs> audience needed that. I mean, uh, yeah, I see why it's called re-recording. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, if you just said sound mixer, I mean, again, that title is kind of already... That's taken. It's kind of already taken. That's kind of more the production sound. Yeah. And I mean, again, these are all just labels that we put on on things and there a lot of times it's, they have like historical, you know, that's, that's what we've always called it. So that's what it's being called. That's right. No, it make it actually, it, it makes sense. Now that you break it down, I will no longer wonder to myself, <laughs> why does it say re-recording? Why right? does it say re-recording? I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's talk about, we met at Berkeley, like, you know, a long yeah. time ago, cause we're, we're getting old ago. now. And, um, oh, I know you were kind of always into the audio post thing. Yeah. When, like, when did you know, because you came out here, you got a job in the beginning, like, when did you kind of decide that even though you were a musician, a drummer and songwriter, that you wanted to do TV work? <sighs> yeah. Well, I mean, 
It's kind of weird. It's hard to describe. <laughs> basically, basically, I'd always been into like recording. Like even like when it became like when I was in like when when I thought it was more on a music side of things. I never really. I mean, I you know live music. Okay, cool, fine, whatever. But I always just was into like records and albums and CDs and just like putting on headphones and like how do they make these sounds and how does it sound so good and like. Yeah. Uh, the kind of the time capsule you know, aspect of it, you know what I mean? Like you make it and it's a time capsule of a certain time or something, you know what I mean? It's its own time capsule and then it becomes a time capsule for you, right? Like songs you listened to when you were a teenager, you know, like come back and like now all of a sudden that's a time capsule for you. But yeah, I was always just really into recorded music and that whole process and, uh, yeah, so when I went to Berkeley and I knew I wanted to, you know, I was just like finishing up, like, cause I transferred from a different school and I was kind of finishing up my degree and I was like, yeah, I want to do music production engineering. Didn't have a real clear idea of I'm going to go do this and then go work in a, in a music studio. Like I, right. that was kind of an option that was, you know, but I was, I kind of sold it to my mom as like. Well, you know, I'll learn a lot of like audio technical kind of stuff. I could work at a radio <laughs> station or I could work at a, you know, this or a that or, you know, like I, I, I kind of didn't really have it like this is what I'm going to do. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, credit Berkeley for, you know, in our program, in the MP&E program, they had one class that was basically... I forget the exact name of it. I remember, I mean, I remember who taught it, but like, it was basically like applying audio to different media formats, right? And it kind of opened my eyes. Like, I didn't know what the process of how TV, like how sound gets put on TV or movies or yeah. video games or any of that kind of stuff. I had literally no idea. And then until I had this class and I was like, oh, wait, so I can, so there's the things I'm learning about audio I can apply to all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. And that kind of like opened my brain. And I, you know, Berkeley was an intense process and I love music, but like, I, I hate to say it, I've never approached music as a very like disciplined <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, student of it. I think of it as a language, you know, music is kind of like a language and like, I think a lot of people can speak it to different degrees, right? Like some people mm. can are like masters of that language and you're like, wow, yeah, I really, you can really speak this. And, you know, a lot of us can kind of get by, right? Like we can, <laughs> we, we can get by speaking it. I don't know. I just never really, I, I, I feel like I never, I feel like I could speak the language, but I never really wanted to master it or at least put the time into mastering it. Yeah. And then I got into this vibe where like, I loved music. It was like an outlet. It was a creative outlet for me. Another thing Berkeley did really well was very clearly, you know, set a realistic expectation for you coming out of a program like music production engineering, like what you were going to walk into, right? Like, yeah, like here is the here is the real world of what this is going to look like for you, right? And I'm not going to lie, I it really made me start questioning, like, well, how bad do I? How bad would I really want to do this? Do you know what I mean? In terms of music, like, right. like going like going down the like music studio tract, you know, like how how bad do I really want that? And I kind of started thinking, you know, I don't really want to get into a situation where I'm coming home at like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, only to go back to the studio and being like, man, if I hear another snare drum today, I'm gonna, you know, lose my goddamn mind. 
You know what I mean? Like, I just never really wanted to get into that place where I started hating music because, like, I was just exposed to it too much. You know what I mean? Like, I, like an overexposure kind of thing. And at the, and simultaneously, I was being exposed to, like, these other ways in which I could use my ears and I could use the knowledge I was gaining about audio and, you know, the different techniques and stuff I was using to, like, apply it to different things, which I thought was totally interesting and really kind of grabbed my attention. And that's kind of how I ended up deciding. I'm like, no, this is what I wanted to do. And when I came out to L.A., I didn't really... I didn't have a clear idea of like, I want to mix TV shows or I want to mix movies. I was kind of very open. I was like, you know, I might want to get into like video game audio or I might want to, you know, I was like, I'll do anything as long as, long <laughs> as you're paying me and, and I can pay my rent. Uh, I'm good. Let's do man. it. Let's do it. <laughs> so that, that's awesome. Yeah. I remember you were, you were looking at some video game jobs when I came out here because you came out yeah. here right before me. Yeah. But uh, well, it was like early 2000, not early, it was like 06, I think. And it was like, you know, video games were very much a thing and like, t you know, took off. But like, it was kind of, I feel like it was closer to the dawn of like the big gaming companies like EA Sports having this like giant campus and very oh, yeah. much in that like, kind of like, uh, you know, what you see in other like Silicon Valley kind of things where like, you know, Google has is exploded and Facebook, you know, all these kind of like giant campuses where they basically give you like all of these perks and, you know, so they don't ever leave, you know, you just stay there working all the time. I feel like it was closer to the dawn of that kind of video gamey, like we're going to expand this industry. And I was hoping to kind of get into it, but like, Honestly, just like the breaks that I got in LA kind of led me more on the TV side of things. And, yeah. you know, so that's yeah. kind of where that ended up. So what's the higher, I mean, a lot of people that listen to the show are familiar with kind mm -hmm. of like the traditional studio hierarchy of like, you're an intern runner and then you're an assistant mm -hmm. and then you're an engineer. Mm -hmm. What's the path for, for the post world? Like when you go to a studio, yeah. are you starting at a specific place or are you still kind of like? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very similar. You know, honestly, I feel like I can't even comment on a traditional path because, no, I mean, honestly, I, I, you know, I am, and you, you come to LA and you talk to people who are established or you talk to them about their starting out or you talk to people who are currently trying to start out. And I mean, this town is full of horror stories, like just, just full of, you know, and it's fun. I mean, like, people like to commiserate over them because as long as you're far enough removed from them, they, they can be funny. Yeah, they are, yeah. But, like, oh, man, part of it, so I'm from Canada, and, like, when you go to college in the States, from anywhere, you get this year of, of what they call OPT, which is Optional Practical Training. So I graduated Berkeley, and basically... They, the, the U.S. government extends my, v, my student visa status for a year. They're basically like, you know, you paid your money in the U.S., you got your degree, we'll give you a year, go out, get some work experience in their mind so you can go home <laughs> and, and get a job, <laughs> more likely get a job there, right? That's basically kind of what the system is set up for. And so, you know, when I was, when I moved down to LA, I, in my mind, I was like, I have a year, like, that's it. Right. I have a year to get a job or get sponsored or, I mean, I didn't really have a plan. It was basically like, you have a year. And so, yeah, I, I kind of just, 
hit the pavement. I called whoever I, whoever would answer my calls and whoever would, you know, like interact with me at all. I just did. But then like, also I did have the opportunity, like I did intern quote unquote, I was hired as an intern at, you know, um, a couple of studios and there was really only one where like I was hired as an intern and it's like, basically, yeah, you come and you work five days, you know, we work 40 hours a week. We don't pay you after, you know, a month or two, you'll do a proficiency test and, you know, basically so we can, we'll test you and make sure that you know how to like, you know, work all the gear and stuff like that. But there's no guarantee after that time that like, you're going to get hired. Yeah. And I was just like, I, I don't have the time. Like, I, I don't have the time to invest six months into this to not get anything out of it other than, like, doing lunch runs and, like, learning your gear, you know? Like, yeah. so I had to leave it. And then I got hired at this other place as a driver, and it was paid. So that was cool. Um, I was a driver where I basically just drove, like, tape reels and hard drives to studios, right? Like, I was basically a shuttler. I was either picking up from studios to bring to this other studio or I was taking it from our studio back to like storage at like Paramount and Sony and which was great as you know someone who I mean that would have been like a couple of weeks into coming to LA so like this was pre smartphones having a map like GPS on my <laughs> phone like I literally had a Thomas guide you know yeah. trying to figure out how the hell I was supposed to get to these places and um <laughs> Which was great. I mean, talk about learning the city. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you're yeah. just driving around trying to, you know, whatever. And um, I was working there as the driver uh, and still pounding the pavement. I'm still making phone calls. I'm still trying to, like, connect with whoever I can, you know, to, like, you know, get a gig doing something. And I, I right. call this one guy um, just off of his website. I don't know what how I found it. I was just searching, like, you know... Los Angeles TV, whatever. And he was this guy who did, uh, I think music and stuff for commercials, you know, and, uh, he called me back and I was like, Oh my God, somebody called me back. That's amazing. So, you know, I'm talking to him and he's like, well, you know, I don't really like, it's just me in my apartment doing jingles for commercials. So I don't really like have any use for hiring anybody. But if you're not busy this weekend, I'm actually moving my apartment. My wife and I bought a house way down in Oceanside, which, you know, for anyone who doesn't live in Los Angeles, is you know, a few hours south from here, kind of on the way to San Diego, but not quite there. And he's like, you know, I got to pack up my, my gear this weekend and I got to be like up and running Monday morning. I'll pay you. I just need to be working by Monday morning. And I was like, and like what he was paying me, I was like, oh yeah, I'm hundred percent there. I mean, it was like really well paid actually. And I was like, yeah, dude, whatever. Yeah, I'm there. So, um, so I go and help him like basically not only pack up his studio, but like most of his house. I mean, they live in an apartment. It wasn't like crazy. And I really hit it off with him and his wife. And like over the weekend, it just was such a good situation and they were so help uh, like so thankful and you know and everything went so well that he like called me on Monday morning and he was like hey man thank you so much for all the help this weekend really appreciate it you know um you know I know that like I'm not you know I don't really hire and I don't, I'm not going to hire you but he was like I really appreciate what you did and I'm going to do whatever I can to like help you get a gig that you're going to love in this town and I was like okay cool 
you know, and then, you know, Amazing. like a week goes by, he calls me up again. He's like, hey, man, so I have this guy I went because he also had gone to Berkeley. He's like, I got this guy that I went to Berkeley with. He's starting a studio in Santa Monica with this other guy. Like, you should give him a call and see what's up and, you know, and, and just see what's going on. So he gives me his number. I call him up. And, like, I ended up working with this, you know, with this contact for, like, six years. Like, That's awesome. Like, so I moved to Los Angeles. I think I got here, like, March 1st of 2020, uh, of 2006. And yeah. by, like, I want to say May, so, like, two months, I started working at a company I worked at for six years. And it was just a perfect situation. It was a small startup. It was two mixers who were the primary owners. And I was... Like, so, like, you know, the traditional setup where, like, you would probably work in the machine room or a tape vault or some sort of thing and kind of, like, get brought up through the, the ranks that way. I started at a small company where I was, yes, that guy, but also, like, because there was no one else, they were having me, you know, do editing and mixing and stuff, like, right away, you know, because they were, like, to them, oh, they were, awesome. like, you know, if he's here and we're paying him, I mean, even if the work he does is crap... You know, if it gets me, you know, 10% better, I'm already paying him to be here, you know, and they started having right. me record VO and cut, you know, sound effects. And, you know, just, I was basically jack of all trades, like whatever they needed me to do, I did. I was also, you know, very much like you would as a runner or something in, a, in whatever studio. I was like doing lunch trays and lunch runs and making coffee. Yeah. And, you know, I was like anything, right? And um, basically, I just started, they started giving me more and more shows until, like, I was mixing shows on my own for, like, you know, like, two years in. <laughs> it was, like, That's awesome. you know, again, commenting on that, like, traditional, like, this is how you do it kind of thing, like, it kind of didn't happen for me. So <laughs> it's hard. If, fair yeah, enough. Fair, yeah, that's pretty non-traditional. Yeah, I mean, but that, that really I just got out. like awesome. super, super lucky. And it was great. They ended up sponsoring me for a visa. And that's how I was able to stay in the United States, you know, coming from Canada. Ended up meeting, you know, a girl, as you do, and getting married. And, you know, here I am. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Well, can we talk about the visa for a second? Sure, yeah. Because um, I actually, now that I think about it, I haven't had anybody on the show that had to go through this, and I know it's crazy to me. I've talked to a few, like, international students, and, like, I've always, like, signed letters for people. Mm -hmm. They need need to get the visas. I mean, you just forget, like, when you're born here mm -hmm. to hear the stories of what other people from other countries have to do just to go to school yeah. here. And then really, like, to go to a specialized thing like a music school. Yeah. Then, like, really you have to stay here or you have to go to, I don't know, like, London or something. But, like, what if you're not from London? Then you're in the same the same shitty spot. Right. So you were... there's. To my understanding, there's a the O-1 visa, which is the artist yeah. visa, which is kind of the free-for-all. Yeah. 
uh, which is not what you had uh, because you were sponsored, right? So you had to work for this company. Is that how that works? Yeah. So, and by sponsored, what I basically what the company said was like, whatever we need to do, whatever we need to sign, like we're happy to do it. You know, like they were they were kind of <laughs> up for whatever. Um, right. I got hooked up with an immigration lawyer who was a friend of one of the friend of the, of the wife of one of the owners of the company. And, um, you know, this was kind of, it's different now. I know that it's different now than it was, mm. you know, this way. Yeah. This is post nine 11. So like, obviously, you know, you got department of home plan security, things had been cracked down, a, you know, a bit. Um, uh, but there was this one visa distinction that existed due to NAFTA, which is like North American Free Trade Agreement, called a TN visa, and it was for professionals from Canada or Mexico. Now, a professional uh, okay. is usually defined as doctor, lawyer, engineer. The engineer side is kind of where I I slipped in a bit because, you know, when you read, the, I mean, and it's law, right? It's basically what you can prove. You know, like what, right. it, it, you know, and how these how these visas are are issued are quite often at an airport going through U.S. customs. So it's mm. not like you're going to court or anything like that. You're basically presenting your case in front of whatever whatever random border guard you're going to get in the. It's on that it's shift. It's like in that <laughs> shift, you get called to that desk versus this desk, and like this guy is having a great day, and that guy's having a crap day. Like you know, like it, oh it's God. literally, it's literally that you know, or at this time is was literally that. I mean, you could send away, you could take your case and send it away to like a central processing place somewhere in, I don't know, but I'm gonna guess like Maryland or something. You know, that's that seems like where it would be. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could do that, right? But, like, my lawyer was kind of like, it's probably better to just take your chances with, you know, whatever person you're going to get. Right. At first, when I did it, it was a year. You had to do it every year. You had to renew. So, like, I had this heart attack every year when I ho went home at Christmas. Like, I hope I get back because I got rent to pay. I got a car payment. I got, you know, I got bills <laughs> to pay. Um, and then they eventually made it three years. And I think I only got it. I only renewed, like, my last time of getting it was, like, a, a three-year thing. It was a three-year. And I did have one year, and I think it was the last time I did um, renew, I had one year where I got rejected initially. Oh, I remember that. The first I time that, I tried yeah. to come back, like, after Christmas, I got rejected. Do you have to wait a certain amount of time to then try to re-enter? Well, not really wait a certain amount of time. It was basically like they rejected my case because, and again, it's it's kind of fitting a square peg into a larger round hole. It, it was kind of like, because I mean, the, the debate is like, what do you define as an engineer? And like, I go to the Berkeley College of Music, my degree is actually a bachelor in music, right? And what they want right. to see is, I want to see your engineering degree. And I'm like, well, it, it's audio engineering. It yeah. is engineering. Like, I'm, you know, there is a kind of a scientific, like, th there is, I mean, I did formulas and stuff for frequencies. You know, like, there are things to it that are engineering, you know what I mean? And we're Math dealing with, like, electronic things and whatever. But my degree says Bachelor of Music, which is what they really had a problem with. Ah, uh, yeah. And so I got this one guy on the last time who was just like, yeah, you're not an engineer. You know, not you're not. And so I had so to go, they reject me, so I missed my flight, so I had to go home and get on the phone with my lawyer, 
And basically, between the two of us, we had to figure out how do you like, because ba- you can't retry until you have more information, right? Like, uh, uh, unless you mm-hmm. have some other aspect of the case that you're bringing, they're basically like, no, we already rejected you. So what did I do? I ended up joining the Audio Engineering Society, which literally is like you pay a, a yearly fee. Anyone can join it. Doesn't matter who it is, but you get a card. You get a little. It says audio you engineer. Get a little, you know, membership card. I took that, got a new border guard, and they let me in. And I was basically like, I'm never going home. <laughs> I'm not going home. You know, if this thing expires, then I'm here. Um, yeah. That's good. That's really great. Yeah, that's that's kind of how. That. But I mean, it is stressful. I mean, you know, like you said, you know, people who are in the States and are American, like, you know, you, don't, think, you about don't think about it. But it is a very stressful thing um, because obviously for what you and or I do, I mean, there are other pockets and it's especially for music, it's becoming much more, you know, uh, decentralized, right? Like in terms of what mm-hmm. you can do yeah. and where you can work and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's still early 2000s. I mean, you know, if you're going to do music, you're going to do television. I mean, where are you going to go in the world? You know, yeah. <laughs> you're going to go to New York. going to go to Los or Angeles. Or you're going to go to Los Angeles. Exactly. And yeah. so, you know, being an international person, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to get in. And I, again, I got super lucky that I had people who were really committed. They were like, yeah, whatever we need to do, whatever we need to sign, we'll do it. Well, it shows that you were a valuable team member. Either. Yeah. They I felt mean, you I, were not replaceable. And I think you know? that's it's important. I mean, you know, a lot of the people who... I, you know, even though my startup story is not your traditional, like, you know, I had to run for three years before they even let me touch a fader, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't that story. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there's a parallel in terms of showing up, good attitude, helpful, do whatever you can, find the little areas in which you can, like, you know, maybe go the little extra mile or be a little extra helpful or fill a hole for somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. And people really appreciate that, you know, especially when people are busy and you can help them and make their lives, you know, a little bit easier. Yeah, they really appreciate this. So again, like it's not a traditional story, but I still think there are some like parallels in terms of like just what you can do when you show up to work, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Always have to go way beyond. You know, in music, you know, my... The end of my studio, working in studio time, sessions, they just become shorter and shorter and shorter. It becomes more difficult to leave an impression or really people are less interested in getting to know who they're working with because they're literally coming in to cut a vocal for two and a half hours, you know? And you just, you're not part of a team at that point, right. you know? When you're making a record, it's a different right. story. Uh, so yeah, anyway, it's kind of a random side tangent. But I wanted to ask you about... Um, this is my perception of post-production and TV and film mixing. Mm-hmm. It usually seems to me that it falls on a facility and a company and that it's not really an independent contractor world. Or are there people that do this yeah. freelance? Well, yes and no. And and it gets more complicated because, and I, I don't really have a ton of knowledge of it on the music side, but on the film side, you know, you get union interaction and, right. you know, union gig, non-union gig, who needs to be union, who doesn't need to be union, et cetera, et cetera. 
So there are people who do freelance um, kind of all aspects of audio post-production. I mean, depending on the like, what's the right word? Depending on the um, level, quote unquote, of the show we're talking about, higher profile shows are going to have larger sound teams. You know, so you you would have um, someone who would kind of be – more of a manager slash producer of the project, which is probably like a sound supervisor. So their duties would basically be hiring. I mean, they're going to hire all these different elements, but they're going to hire someone to be a dialogue editor. They're going to hire someone to be a sound effects editor. They they might be the re-recording mixer themselves, or they might or there might be other re-recording mixers. And generally speaking, on a higher end thing, you're going to have two one doing dialogue and music and one doing effects. So you would have two people sitting on a stage mixing at the same time together. Because again, a lot of the projects I do, I'm mixing by myself. Historically speaking, mixing was like the directors, producers and stuff are in the room with you sitting behind you as the thing is getting mixed, right? From the first pass From like the top, you know? Basically like we recorded the band now the producer and the whole band are sitting behind as you're like setting up how you're going to start mixing this thing and through every aspect of you mixing this thing. Now, when you're doing that, are you are you mixing like reels at a time? Or are you doing passes on the full movie or the full so show? So I don't, I do more television, which again, movies would be done in reels, but yes. So basically what I'm saying is like on the higher end stuff, you would have a larger team. A sound supervisor would kind of either be one of the re-recording mixers or the re-recording mixer or just the sound supervisor who is overseeing, you know, what the dialogue editor is doing, what sound effect editors are doing, what the re-recording mixers are doing, and also liaisoning with directors, producers, right? Like basically taking their input and making sure that their sound team is doing what they're expecting to hear. Translating. Yeah, basically translating, right? Right. Yeah. And so what I do, I'm much more of a self-contained unit. Now, where I work, we do have dialogue editors and sound effects editors. So they will they will work on those aspects of the shows. And then I take what they've set up for me, basically, and start adding it all together and kind of, you know, re-recording mixers, uh, re-recording mixing is also kind of, it's like if you jammed in a music world, the mix stage with the mastering stage, right? Ah, uh, yeah. So I'm putting the show together in a sonic way, like, you know, making sure we can hear dialogue and the music gets pushed at this point and the sound effects are cutting through in this way and and all that. And we're feeling what we're supposed to be feeling in all these times. I'm also responsible for making sure I'm hitting broadcast specs, right? And every network or streaming service or whatever is going to have a maybe a different loudness uh, value, going to have different peaks that they don't want you to go past. They're going to have different stem or deliverable requirements that they're going to expect you to deliver at the end of the show. So there is kind of a mastering element uh, rammed in kind of, you know, as I'm working. I don't just get to mix and then be like, okay, it's done. They'll figure it out. Right. You know, I, I yeah. am also responsible for how the show gets delivered. Okay. I was going to ask you that if, if you were the person handling yeah. all those standards, because I know TV is like one of those places that actually has very rules yeah. on like music where it's a free for all. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is true. But um, yeah. So yeah, I am responsible for like making sure that whatever the specification is, you know, for this project, for this network, for this whatever, that the show exists in that spec 
and I deliver them everything they're asking for from me, you know, right. in terms of stems and all that stuff. If you mix a show, if the, the streamers have different rules mm-hmm. at times, mm-hmm. if you mix a show for TV and then it later ends up on Netflix like five years later, does somebody have to remix that to meet their specs or do they just do it, no, do it to the stems? A lot of that and, stuff, I'm, I, I don't know this for a fact, but just knowing how Netflix operates, they would account for that. Okay. Right. So Netflix is a very progressive company in terms of, I mean, uh, you, you hear that buzzword like um, disturbers or like industry disturbers. I mean, they very much yeah, were yeah. an industry disturber in, you know, this kind of television, you know, movie television kind of realm. They really came in and started saying, okay, yeah, we see the way that things have been done, like historically speaking. Yeah, we're not going to do it this way. <laughs> like, we're big enough and we're throwing around enough money that, like, this is the way we want it. And for a lot okay. of that, like, back catalog stuff, I mean, they pay for licensing. And they, ha- you know, they pay whoever it is, HBO, Showtime, right. Paramount, you know, Fox, whatever. They pay them for the, content, for the yeah. content to license the content for a specific amount of time. And the content is the content. I mean, it, you know. I'm sure the way, just the way that I that I've seen Netflix operate, they have an internal setup for like, you know, how we take a show that's this loud and this is our in our spec is this, and we just convert it. I mean, really, you Got know it. what I mean? Like they yeah. have a way to set it up on their platform the way they want it delivered to their clients. Have you seen that? Like, uh, obviously, everybody's making content now: Amazon, Netflix, mm-hmm. Apple. Do you see a lot of those shows coming through the post houses or are those companies operating very in-house? Are they bringing in their own staff? No, surprisingly, um, I mean, we work on a lot of, I mean, we're kind of, the the place I work at, we're a preferred, like on the like documentary reality side of Netflix. um, Because a lot of, like, once you get into scripted territory, so anything with a script, writers, etc., that's much more of a union world, right? Uh, okay. Documentary and reality, based on the contracts that productions do with the union, you kind of can start getting into like you know your colorist or different elements of how, like how this thing's going to get finished. Like those people don't necessarily need to be unionized. On the on the uh, okay. scripted side of things, it's much more like a lot more of those actors or no, that's a bad word. A lot more of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. It just gets confusing when you're talking about shows, right? A lot more of those like different departments, whether it's, you know, online color or graphic effects or sound or whatever on the post-production side in the scripted world, a lot more of those people are going to have to be union just based on the contracts okay. that are existing. between existence. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, production for the most part except for reality and probably documentary because, you know, documentary starts falling into a journalistic kind of realm, right? Where like one guy with a camera can go out and shoot, you know, and he doesn't have to be union because he's just going out and shooting whatever his subject is. And, you know, but like, you know, you start, I mean, writers always going to be union. You start hiring actors always going to be union. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, so, (laughs) so on the scripted side of things, yeah, it's much more of a a kind of a union um, world. Now, 
you know, these content creators like Netflix and Amazon and stuff like that, surprisingly, not surprisingly, but they have definitely uh, acted more like, um, you know, they're hiring. I mean, they pay for shows to be made, but they're also hiring production companies to make their shows. Does that make sense? Yeah, right. 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 So, uh, you know, um, they're the ultimate distributor, owner, whatever, but they're paying you know, Travis Ferrance production, like Travis, I want a show about making a, a music podcast. We're going to pay you, you know, $10 million to go make that show for us. Deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, so, um, so they have people that they like to work with. They have their preferred vendors, whether it's on the sound side or, or video side or whatever. And I'm sure they have their preferred like production companies when they're talking about, like, we want a show about whatever, yeah, you know, but they are very much like going out and having those people create the content for them. And they're okay. very much more, I think on the, like, you know, the platform side, the marketing side, the, you know, international distribution side. I mean, they're the scope of what they are is quite impressive. I mean, you know, like it is, it is massive. Yeah. yeah. Something else I wanted to touch on before we go and kind of work our way to the end, mm -hmm. is uh, you've been doing, if I remember correctly, a fair bit of Atmos mixing for Dolby Atmos. Yeah, that started for me a couple of years ago. I mixed a show for Netflix. It was kind of the first, I mean, f at least for us, it was the first show where Atmos was becoming a thing. It was a show called West Side. <laughs> I mean, it kind of like didn't really go anywhere. I thought it was a very interesting show and very interesting idea. It has a very music like and and actually kind of like um um kind of apropos of like i think maybe folks that would listen to your podcast travis because it was basically like here's a bunch of musicians in la trying to make it trying to do something and it was a reality docu-series show about we're going to come together and do a benefit show for something you know I, and we're going to work with like you know, name producers, like people in this town who like have done some things, <laughs> you know, and we're going right. to, we're going to work on our songs and we're going to work on, uh, you know, how this show is going to come together. And we're going to work on how these personalities are going to, you know, come together. And they shot like crazy, like expensive music videos for all these shows and, or for all these songs. And like, you know, it was kind of like a, in a La La Land like reality version, kind of La La Landy kind of thing. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, so we mixed it in Atmos, and it was my first experience with Atmos. And um, you know, there's a lot of things that are getting mixed in Atmos that people are like, like, why is this happening? And the best I can explain it to people is, you know, when surround sound happened, right? When we went from stereo to surround, yeah. A lot of these content providers like spent a lot of money going back to old reels and play, paying studios and mixers to basically remix their films or TV shows or whatever it was in surround. They spent a lot of money. And like Atmos, in terms of having it in your home, is becoming more of a, a thing. Like I know at home, I have a, a, a Sennheiser Ambio soundbar, which, you know, is just a soundbar, but it is... Sennheiser claims is supposed to, you know, it throw things off. It throws, it's kind of, 
the so the ends of it are slanted and it's supposed to project things off the walls of your existing space. It has upward firing speakers that send things up to the ceiling. It has the ones on the end that send things off of the side walls. It is supposed to basically take an Atmos mix and give you a more Atmos experience in your home without having, you know, a ton Atmos. of speakers and amps and perfect placement and yada, yada, yada. So you yeah. have these content creators like Netflix, and Netflix has been kind of the leading edge on, you know, let's get things done in Atmos. And I think it's, again, it's just kind of looking at what happened when we went from stereo to surround and being like, let's just future-proof this stuff. You yeah. know, these companies that create hardware are coming up with bigger and better ways to get somebody an Atmos-style experience in your apartment, in your studio apartment in North Hollywood, right? Like... We're working on yeah. ways, and and eventually they will come up with better and better ways to to give you that experience. You know, if we're paying for these shows to be made, why wouldn't we mix them in Atmos? Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like when the hardware technology has caught up to what we can do very cheaply and very easily, you know, wh wh why would we then go back and pay for all of our content to be put into this format like why don't we just commit to it now and like say yeah you know we're this is what we're doing yeah well yeah like you said there's so many changes on the hardware side now you've got like the the new apple airbud pros have right spatial binaural stuff exactly. i know there's a lot of music being mixed in atmos totally. i was talking to somebody they're doing scripted podcasts in atmos yeah. and i mean obviously tv and film are always first to these things yeah. because you're in the theater yeah. and so the idea of having speakers on the ceiling and the spaceship flying over yeah. i mean that's a no-brainer right yeah, absolutely but yeah no it's it's interesting and the format to me from what i understand feels it feels like they want it to last for a long time because of the way the objects work right you know and it can kind of decode itself to yeah fit into the system i mean without right? getting too technical about it there are two so there's there's a consumer level atmos and then there's like professional like the professional would be more like a theater setup right right but it is really slick i mean it it is a system on the professional side that you can scale mm -hmm. where i'm saying like you can start adding in speakers and taking away speakers and really the system kind of accounts for itself does that make sense like so your mix can go from theater to theater and whether exactly. you're Atmos and, equipped or, right. or you're not, I mean, then the, you're this, fine. If you can think of the system itself it, as a globe, right? When I send yeah. an object on a path, it basically decodes based on the system you have. So if I only have mm, right. two speakers, you know, one front and then one on the side, it figures out the percentage of power to send to each of those speakers to make this object sound like it's traveling on a lot on this line. If right. I somehow move that system to to another theater that now all of a sudden I have three side speakers, right? Three side speakers, independent, right? Mm -hmm. It takes it and now I just have a higher level of fidelity, but the mix, you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. I don't have to change my mix because it's all based on data, right? It's all like spatially, yeah. this is where this sound is moving and it just uses those speakers in a different way to, to just produce that. It is really, really cool. Like, um, you know, I think about it all the time and it really, like when I started mixing in that format, it was kind of like a, like, oh my God, there's so much you can do with this because 
you know, it's like going from, you know, uh, if mono is a studio apartment and stereo is like a one bedroom and surround sound is like, oh, we got a little condo now. I mean, Atmos is like we've moved into a mansion. Like there is space <laughs> here to do things that like, I don't know how much you've like mixed surround versus stereo. If you're mixing music and stereo, so much of it is like, you know, especially depending on how busy a track can get, right? Like how do I make sure that I hear all of these little things that I want you to hear when they're coming out of two speakers? I mean, you, you yeah. start adding the space that you can put things into and it just becomes like, oh yeah, obviously the triangle is going to go in the ceiling at the top of the, you know, like on my right side. And I'm going to hear that pattern, whatever it is, like if we're talking music, yeah. I'm going to hear it like so clearly because it's not squished on top of this synth that has like this high chimey, whatever. Right. You know, like, it's just like, yeah. it's like going, you have the separation, you have you can move it around. so much separation and there's just so many cool things you can do creatively like mixing in Atmos, like the creativity, like there's kind of, especially for something like music and especially for someone like me who loves recorded music. I mean, to hear what people can do in, in that kind of spatial area is just so cool. Yeah. I, I don't have a setup obviously that I can listen on, but mm -hmm. I've, I've thrown on some Atmos music just with the binaural experience. Yeah, And um, it's interesting, you know, but I, I've heard a few things in proper studios and it is cool, man. It's just, and it's, you just like really get lost in it way more than you did in surround. It's just way you know, more experience, right? Like it is, it, it is. you can tell the yeah. difference, the experience difference. Yeah. It's almost like you're within this like kind of phasey thing yeah. for anybody that understands phasey. Mm -hmm. It's like, you really kind of feel like you're swimming in it. It's kind of, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, you're kind of in a fishbowl, really. I mean, you yeah, are in, yeah. you're in a bit of a fishbowl and things are happening around you. Yeah. It's yeah. really cool. That's awesome. I had, um, I think I had two short questions. If I can sure. read my crazy handwriting here, do you have any advice to like young composers that are delivering mixes and stems to like a TV show hmm. for the first time? Is there anything that you see that's like a disaster every time? <laughs> that, 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 in, you know, in an unloaded answer. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, be prepared for changes. Because <laughs> they come from everywhere. If the director doesn't want you to change the cue, the network might want you to and be flexible. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, in your workflow, however you work, like whatever temp, I know, I mean, I know a lot of composers that, you know, have their, you know, set up. So, like, if I want strings, boom, they're like, you know, it's real easy to grab and to make happen. Um, you know, especially on like higher end doc stuff. I mean, quite often you're going to see a, a composer deliver me, the person that's going to put it to the show, they're going to deliver me stems. So be used to, or set kind of as you're working, as you're composing, as you're developing your workflow, your system, make sure you're comfortable with delivering stems and making sure that like the stems you are delivering, like, you know, if you're going to deliver people a two mix, right, like a stereo mix to put into an edit to as a temp or as a whatever, make sure those stems that also exist underneath that mix or in addition to that mix, if I put those stems together, they sound the same as the mix. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you have volume automation that exists in your queue that, you know, is in the mix, make sure that those those the the stems stacked together and your mix should sound the exact same. Can I interrupt you sure. for just a second? Yeah. Um, 
do I know like a composer or a mixer would never want to hear this, but when you're on the stage, if you have the stems, is it possible that the director says, hey, yes. duck the horns there? Yes, totally. It happens all the time. I don't like that horn part. And as a composer... Oh, like actually taking yeah, things oh, out. Oh, yeah. Turn it down, <laughs> take it out. Anything. I mean, really. And as a composer, I mean, I know, you know, if you're a composer and you're listening to this, I know you probably have a certain level of um, pride and whatever. And that's fine when you're making your record, okay? If it's going to be your record and it's your creative outlet, that's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're going to compose something for film... I mean, unless you're like Trent Reznor or someone who has like a, you know, serious name and people are going to have to like kowtow to your creative, whatever you want to do, you need to check that ego at the door. Uh, I've had multiple sessions where like a composer comes to a mix review and just derails the whole session because they don't understand that their music is not the most important thing in the show. And it's not. The dialogue, the story that's being told, whether it's a documentary or it's scripted or whatever, that's the most important thing. And whatever you're composing music-wise is supporting that. And if that means the director wants to take out your horn part that you loved or that triangle that you thought was just the best thing ever, you need to just be like, yeah, cool, whatever. Yeah, fine. You know, again, yeah. it goes back to when we were talking about like how you start out, like, there's plenty of examples in the entertainment industry of people with, you know, bad attitudes or, you know, getting ahead and stuff like that. But really more often than not, there are, you know, a lot of people who work a lot and on very high end things that are very low ego and they get rehired yeah. because whoever is in charge of the creative, you know, direction or what this thing is going to be at the end of this thing they know that if they hire this person to be their mixer or to be their whatever, they're not going to get in the way, right? Like, because ultimately there is going to be one person responsible for delivering uh, a record to a record label or delivering a show to a network. And, you know, they're not going to hire people that are going to fight them about, you know, some stupid horn line. It's like, no, I don't want it in there. It's distracting. I can't tell what's going on in the show. Like, no, it's getting taken out. So... Yeah, I mean, be prepared to deliver stems and be flexible on when things need to change because I know you composed this really great, like, you know, string quartet thing, but now we need a hip-hop track here because, you know, they're talking about hip-hop music. Okay, right. cool. Right. Yeah, let me let me whip something up for you, you know? You can kind of compare it to, you know, like, some of the best rock drummers in this town. Right. I mean, they have crazy chops. Yeah. And they spend ninety five percent of their day on the floor, done playing pocket, yep, just boom, boom, small fills, and because that's what the that's song what you need. Is. Even and they, they could, could give play you a million notes. They could give you whatever you wanted, right? Like exactly. they could give you if you wanted something crazy, they could give it to you. But they know that that's not what you need, and that's not what the song needs. And they're willing to just just and that's and that's really the, what it comes down to. If you're if you're a recording engineer, if you're a mixer, if you're if you do what I do on the TV side of things, if you're a composer, you have to understand that you're in a service industry. You're no different than a hairdresser or a, a chef at a restaurant or, uh, you know, whatever. It, you just work on something different. You know, we make the joke all the time, you know, mixer to mixer. It's like, you just tell me how you want your steak cooked. I'll cook it for you however you want it cooked. But 
Just tell me right. and I'll do it. You know, if you're a composer, just tell me what you want me to compose. I'll compose it. If you change your mind, okay, great. Send it back. We'll cook it again. And you have to be careful though, because you can get taken advantage of in this town for sure. For sure. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you got to be careful. I'm not saying like, just, you know, <laughs> just, uh, just be totally open and flexible, but ego is a tough thing. You know, we are all doing a creative thing. There is an amount of creativity to it. And there are opportunities for you to be creative, but you really have to like keep that in check a little bit, I think, and make sure that you understand oh, yeah. that you're serving someone else's creative idea and you're using your expertise, what you know how to do, whether that's composing or mixing or recording or whatever. You're using all that expertise that you have to help them. You're helping yeah. somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's really- yeah, You're working together. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, confidence and ego. Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you're confident in your skill set as a composer, you don't care if the director mutes your, your brass line. Yeah, what does it matter to you? If you're not confident in your work and you feel like you need that brass line is the difference between your work being good and not, or not, right. then you're, you're starting to wander into like, you need, you need that ego boost to feel like you're doing the thing, things right. So it's not the, you know, not the best example, but yeah, there's a fine line between being confident and having an ego. And, um, especially in the creative world, because those things can really get mixed up. You and know? It, there is a thing about ownership, right? Like when you, yeah. when you start getting into a creative endeavor, you know, who owns what, you know, like bands break up over it. I mean, like, you know, like <laughs> we're starting to write a song. Well, I came up with the baseline. Does that mean I wrote it? Well, no, I wrote the chords and the, and the lyrics and you just wrote the baseline based on what I did. So I wrote the song. It's like, right. you know, I mean, there is, it's, it's the, it's an old adage. And when you're working in a creative medium, like music or television or whatever, or movies or video games, whatever it is, you have a certain level of expertise and people are going to want your input to a certain point. You just have to, you have to keep in perspective why you're there and what you've been hired for and like who is ultimately yeah. responsible for it. Again, like confidence and ego, like if I'm a composer, the fact that they hired me on this thing should give me the confidence enough that like they hired me because they think I can do this and I think I can obviously do this. But at the end of the day, the ego thing is like, my name's going to be on this. So I, I don't really care if they think the show is better served by muting my, my horn line doesn't mean they're going to take my name off the show. It's still going to be my credit. You know, all the rest of the music that I made for the show is in the show, right? Like, right. Yeah. You know, like, um, you know, I don't know. It's just kind of a perspective thing because, again, I, I've seen, if we're just getting advice for composers, because I'm sure there's a few that listen, uh, be flexible and be easy to work with you know, and yeah. be collaborative, right? Like, don't just take ownership. Like, this is my music and like, you can't touch it. And like, I know it's in your show, but it's mine. Like, it's not yours. If right. you're being hired to compose something, it ain't your music anymore. You know, you're, it's true. they're basically hiring you to write music for them, not for you. Probably a work for hire agreement in the first place. So just, just in the, the name of the uh, contract that you signed. Exactly. Tells you what you're doing. Exactly. Okay, so I, I know you, you have to go. If you have a, a short answer to this question, yeah. just a quick one, yeah. is there one thing uh, when you were starting out in the post world, is there one thing you wish you knew for somebody that might want to get into this world? Oh, my God. Uh, 
Well, I mean, I, f I feel like a lot of it we've already talked, just in terms of attitude. Every, I feel like everything we just talked about with the composer like really links. Well, but I mean, it's a lot of it is the attitude so stuff. Many things. In part of the attitude ego conversation, also just realizing and being open to. I mean, one of the big things that was like kind of eye opening to me, and I think I've in conversations with you and and some of our other friends and stuff who went through a similar experience at Berkeley. You know, you go to a school like that and yeah, they're expensive and they're intense and, you know, you come out of it thinking that you know things or that you, you know what I mean? And then you start working and you realize how little you actually know, right? Like you have yeah. a real strong base. Like, you know, in theory, what a compressor does, you know, in theory, what an EQ does, you know, in theory, what a tambourine is supposed to do. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know what these things are supposed to do. But like just the, the revelation when you start working that you, you don't necessarily know how to use them yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? Like Totally. And, and so in looking back over like starting to work and stuff like that, just being relaxed and being open and understanding that you are going to learn so much more when you start actually applying the kind of the theories that you've been exposed to in, a, in an educational, you know, way – and just not feeling like you you need to have all of it mastered. I mean, you know, if I think about when I started mixing, and I'm sure it's very much like an old school, like, like you know, medieval kind of like apprentice master, you know, like apprentice woodworker to a master craftsman or something. like. It's, it's kind of the same system. You know, yeah. I knew what a compressor did, but like when I started mixing, like, I would compress based on like the mentors that I saw, like, the, well, this is what they did. Until I got to a point where it was like, well, I know what a compressor does. And I know I've been doing this for a long time this way, but maybe I'm going to try it this way. You know, and I start building my own workflow off of just taking the knowledge I know about it and kind of having a more conscious thought about what I want to do or how I want something to sound or how I could change something in the way I've done something to make it sound a certain way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's kind of like a, just a comfortability in understanding that there's a ton you don't know and that's fine you know get yourself in the right situations with the right people and you will learn so 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 much be a sponge be open be flexible and be willing and make yourself available to those experiences and to those people and yeah i think i think the rest will take care of itself hopefully and you don't end up in one of those like la hollywood or entertainment industry horror stories that's right. I, lo I love that. That's so good. Uh, okay, so last question. Yeah. You, you listen to the show, so you know how it ends. Uh, what right now is currently your biggest goal, and what is the next smallest step that you are going to take towards it? Aye, aye, aye. Um, didn't prepare for this one. No, I didn't, you know, and I have listened to a few of these, and I should have. I should have known this was coming. Um, my biggest goal. Well, you know, I am always striving to be a better mixer, and that's kind of a very vague answer. I mean, how do we define that? For me, it's a very personal definition. It's, I'm, I'm, I mean, duh, I, I, this is kind of goes without saying I'm a very auditory person. I mean, I'm very, my ears, once I had kids, I figured out I had, you know, and they wake up in the middle of the night and then early in the morning and stuff like that. And it really started affecting my sleep and my mood and stuff like that. I now have to, now that I have kids, I have to sleep with earplugs because the smallest sounds from the hours of three o'clock in the morning on will wake me up and I'm just up. Like I can't, I can't get back to sleep. And so 
And I've always been like really triggered by sounds. You know, I I will never forget. There's this one production company and I forget the name of the production company, but I'll never forget this production card. You know, you go to the movies and you're sitting down and the the show's about to start and and the production cards come from like who was responsible for making this movie. There was one of them that had the sound of page turning. Do you know, do you you ever remember watching a movie? And I swear to God, every time that production card came on, it was almost like it like tickled my ears in a way that just like made me happy. So when I talk about being a better mixer, it's always just like, how can I make dialogue better and clearer? And, you know, how, how can I, how can I refine the ways I approach things? Like if I have a really noisy show. I used to, and I think it's a trap that like a lot of mixers, young mixers or people coming just into mixing, you know, you know, and I'm sure it happens on the music side of things too. When you're a, an inexperienced mixer, you almost feel like you have to go too far. Like you have to over justify your position in a project, right? Like 100%. I, I'm going to have to over compress this, you know, drum or this bass guitar, right? Like you talk to people with experience and they're much more laid back with what they do because they've been in enough situations where they know when they're going to need to, when they can put a lot of compression on something or maybe draw it back because now we're kind of sucking the life out of things. Whereas like younger mixers or come to things where like, I have to over justify my role in this thing. So if I have a really noisy show, I'm going to like noise reduce the hell out of it because then it shows like I'm a good mixer, right? Like I, I've gotten rid of all the noise. Well, yeah, you've gotten rid of all the noise, but now literally it sounds like these people are aliens and everything's been bit crushed. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, again, I'm always, I'm always like trying to become a better mixer. Like, you know, refine my workflow, uh, be more comfortable and confident in like what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, find ways in which just little, you know, and it's like incremental um, changes, like how I can make this dialogue a little rounder. I'm really into like rounder sounding, like a little more low endy sounding dialogue or have a little more sparkle on it. And what are the ways I can find to make that happen? How can I make sound effects pop without like, overtaking the whole thing you know what i mean how can i how can i approach the way i mix music to bring more emotion to certain um to certain things so um those are i mean that's my general like what i'm trying to do always um the the ways in which i am going to approach that or small steps i take i mean i mean i'm always again i'm always on the hunt every project presents an opportunity to like, well, let me see what the content is, like how it was recorded, what's the sound, what are the elements? And then, you know, just examining it and figuring out like, okay, well, I think, I think this dialogue was recorded really nicely. So maybe I'm going to try to add a little more sparkle to it. Maybe I'm going to try to, you know, do less noise reduction, right? And just let things be a little more natural on this one, you know what I mean? Like just, so, um, my small step is, is just to be (laughs) conscious, you know, I guess just always being conscious of what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And should I be doing it? That's kind of the questions I always ask myself. That's really good, man. I, I've enjoyed catching up. I haven't seen you in so long. It's been been a long time. Oh man. So long. We need to golf. Um, is there anything you wanted to share websites or socials or with with anybody um 
That's a good question. I mean, no. I mean, uh, um, I mean, if if no. if anyone had a specific question or wanted to like ask me something, I'm sure they could get in touch with me via you. I mean, nobody really wants to go to my IMDb page, um, and I don't really participate that much in social media because you know I work in a room by myself, so I don't really have much that I need to promote. Uh, um, so I would Perfect. I would say probably not, but I you know again I hope everybody um, uh, enjoyed talking about you know just different ways that we can approach you know if you're someone who likes working with audio or wants to work with audio there are plenty of other opportunities out there to do that and uh you know just hopefully someone feels you know emboldened to kind of pursue those or think about them awesome thank you so much man this is this has been great i hope you have a great day yeah you too man so that's it for episode 40 thanks to ryan for coming on the show and thanks so much to you all for listening If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to the podcast. I'd greatly appreciate it, and it really helps the show out. Also, as I mentioned last week, I have launched a Patreon for the show. If you're interested in supporting the show in that way, there is a link in the show notes. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. Tons of great conversations going on over there. So I will see you next week.